You're listening to the Silicon Valley Podcast. On this week's episode of the Silicon Valley Podcast, we sit down with Drew Freeman. He is an independent board director at Ideal Power, NASTEC symbol IPWR, and is currently serving on the board of directors at Sandhill Angels. Drew is a former CEO of Association of Corporate Growth, Silicon Valley. He had a 30-year semiconductor veteran. Drew advises and consults for early-stage startups, multi-billion-dollar corporations, and for financial institutions studying the implications of technology disruptions on the automobile industry. On today's show, we talk about the most active angel groups in Silicon Valley, what types of due diligence does one do on a company before investing, what role do syndicate members play after making an investment, what are the negatives or benefits of investing as an individual or in a syndicate, how does one find boards to be on? What technologies out there that could really help West Africa and much more on this week's episode of the Silicon Valley Podcast. Now let's begin. Enjoy. Welcome to the Silicon Valley Podcast with your host, Sean Flynn, who interviews famous entrepreneurs, venture capitalists, and leaders in tech. Learn their secrets and see tomorrow's world today. I'm super excited for this week's episode of the Silicon Valley Podcast. Now, I've known Drew for years, and actually, Drew and I, we just took a trip with a delegation from Silicon Valley to West Africa, Cote d'Ivoire. I'm sure I'm pronouncing it incorrectly, but we had a full week of getting to know each other and talking. So sure, it was the best week of Drew's life, but, but let's go. <laughs> but Drew, before going into the questions, can you give our audience a brief background of your career up until this point? How much time do we have? <laughs> I promise you, I'll be shorter than that. All right. So I am a career longtime semiconductor guy. Uh, I'm an engineer by training, but really early in my career, I moved over to the business side of things, mainly sales and marketing. Spent my entire career in tech, 30 years in total in the semiconductor industry. And it's really been a journey, right? It, I grew up in Southern California, but eventually found my way to Silicon Valley in the mid 90s. And then Lived six years in Japan, followed by eight years in Germany, seven years in Germany, I'm bad at math, and three years in China, and eventually back to Silicon Valley. So kind of full circle on that. The second half of my semiconductor career was focused on selling to the automotive industry, which when I first started doing that, I'm like, yeah, it seems like kind of a boring industry. What, what do you put in a car, right? It's a car, it's metal, it's plastic, it's motors, it's oil. Pretty shortly after that, that I got into it was when all of the innovation started to happen around connecting the car, putting a lot more processing power into the car, eventually working towards all what today are ADAS systems, all the sensors and things to keep drivers safer and migrating towards autonomous driving. And so when I came back to Silicon Valley, it was actually perfect timing for that because that's really when that revolution was kind of going full steam ahead with all the innovation here around electric vehicles and around uh, autonomous vehicles. And so I sort of followed the epicenter of innovation really from Europe and China and then eventually back here. Got tired of living, living on airplanes. At one point in time, I was one of Lufthansa's probably top five or 10 flyers in the world and spent three weeks out of four on the road in hotels, which wasn't good for my wife, wasn't good for me. And thought it was time to probably hang up the towel on corporate life and kind of retired, but a little bit too young to be fully retired and wanting to stay 
involved and engaged with technology and felt I had a little bit to offer to some people. So I thought I would try to get involved in maybe doing some consulting and advising and ended up also investing in the transportation disruption technology, first through a, becoming an LP in a VC fund that focuses on automotive and transportation. And then I started dabbling in angel investing and eventually found my way into Sandhill Angels and been doing that ever since. And so for a semi-retired guy, I'm actually busier than ever, but I'm having a lot of fun. Love to travel, see the world. That's less than 25 minutes, I think. Possibly, possibly. I want to talk a little bit about Sandhill Angels and you being on the board. But before that, if my math is correct, you were overseas for 18 years. It was 17 because I made a mistake on Germany. What lessons, what did you learn from that incredible experience? So the first thing that I learned was that for any significant problem that needs to be solved culturally or in a society or in business, there's more than one right way to solve a problem. And it's really easy uh, as an American to feel like, hey, we're the most successful economy in the world. We're the biggest economy in the world. So we know the right way to do everything. And you go to a country and you see what they're doing and you think, huh, this is stupid. We should do it the American way. And you learn very quickly that, no, there's a lot of really good other ways to solve problems and to do things. And you go to a country like Japan, for example, where for many things, it's almost like you couldn't find a problem and have them solve it the same way the Americans would solve it. It's almost like they do it the opposite way, almost on purpose, but it's not on purpose, right? We drive on the right side, they drive on the left side. It's just one silly example, but the way you eat, the way things are prepared, cultural business practices, how decisions are taken, it's phenomenal. And yet it works, and it works quite well in in that cultural context. And that was really eye-opening for me to experience how your customers are making decisions and how different it is than our own company is making decisions or the customers I was used to dealing were making decisions. And I learned to really appreciate that and, and enjoy that and, and, and find that just so rewarding to be part of that process. And basically, the reason I was sent over in the first place was to build a bridge between our Japan organization and the U.S. headquarters because they couldn't figure out always how to work well together. And helping our colleagues here work better with our team over there and our customers and vice versa. And it was so much fun to become that bridge. It was just really a wonderful experience. And the same thing happened again when I moved to Europe and the same thing happened again in China. There's just always these different things. And then, of course, I wasn't just working in Japan and China and Germany. I was actually doing business in many different countries. So I lived in those countries, but I was doing business in Korea and Singapore and Malaysia, France, Italy, Spain everywhere. And so every country is different. So how did you learn the cultural norms or the ways of doing business in these different countries? How could our listeners or someone accelerate their learning? My approach, and it doesn't have to be every, not everybody has to follow the same approach, but my approach is to follow fifth habit of the seven habits of highly effective people, which is seek first to understand and only then to be understood. So I just observe and just figure out what people are doing and try to understand why they're doing it rather than insisting on doing things my way. Sometimes that would maybe be a little bit slower to, to solve the first problem, 
But by the time you're solving the second or third problem, you're actually running at a much faster speed than you would be if you were always beating your head against the wall, trying to do things the way you normally do things in a different cultural context. So I would just really observe and try to understand why are these customers doing things this way? Why is the Japanese decision-making process this way? Why do you have to have this meeting followed by that meeting followed by that meeting instead of just going to the decision maker and getting them to say yes or no. And after you learn that process, then you just, that's how you do it. And you work it and you, all of a sudden you start getting results, but it takes a little while to get up that initial step. But then when the results start coming, it's like turning on the hose and then the water just keeps flowing out of the hose. If you're able to get the knowledge to be able to get those results, know where to go in that. Wouldn't you be so valuable to the company they wouldn't want to move you? Wouldn't you be locked down there? I mean, why move to another country? So the real value is transferring that knowledge and multiplying and replicating that knowledge. So once you kind of figure it out and you get the teams working well together, getting out of being in the middle of that process and having everybody work directly with each other is actually much more powerful because then instead of having one person who knows how to do that, you have entire teams that are now comfortable working back and forth and you have, an, you have the local office very comfortable working directly. So you, ideally, you don't want a bunch of expats in a country doing all of these coordinating efforts, right? You, you want to train the local office to be able to work better and understand the headquarters and you want the headquarters organizations to be more in tune to the cultures of your remote offices. So in that journey, you got to learn a bunch of cultures. Was there any one or two just surprises that just shocked you or that stories from the, that time that you still, still share to this day? I'm sure there are, but you know, nothing's just jumping right out at me at the moment. We can circle back to that. So you're also, or you're currently on the board of one of the most active, if not probably the most active angel group in Silicon Valley, Sandhill Angels. Can you talk a little bit about that group and your involvement on the board? Yeah. So Sandhill Angels has now a little bit more than 150 members, quite diverse group in terms of backgrounds, businesses that people come from. We have doctors and lawyers and accountants and engineers, software people former entrepreneurs, former corporate people. And the one thing that binds everybody together is this passion for entrepreneurship, working with startup companies, helping them be successful and investing good companies and getting a good return on investment in it for those investments. And as the organization has grown over the years, it's about 23 years old now, I believe. I've only been with them since about 2016. But at this point, I think we have about $170 million under management. 2012, which is our peak investment year. Man, I got to get my year straight here. 2021 was our peak investment. We invested about $32 million. In 2022, it fell off quite a bit because of the, what happened with the financial markets and everything in that year. And of course, we're angel investors. We're individuals that are writing checks out of our own pocket, basically. But So it, it dropped off down to probably $12 million or something like that. But we're quite active. We do a, a one of deals every year. We operate quite differently than a lot of other angel groups, which is one of the things that I like a lot about the group. And I think what attracted me to the group, we're largely volunteer driven. We're very egalitarian. The board that I'm on is elected by the members. Everybody that's on the board is volunteer. It's a lot of work for no pay. But on the other hand, anything that you take seriously, you get out proportional to what's put in. So being on the board, I think, helps make you a better investor in a way. Decisions are made. We have a process for evaluating companies and decisions are made 
on a given investment by individual investors if they want to invest or not, but we have a process that supports that. And so there's a group effort that evaluate deals. We don't have a team of professional diligence people, or we don't have a professional investment committee. Uh, We have people that are excited about a deal and they take the lead and run the deal through the group and run it through the process. And where we really differentiate ourselves is that when we invest in a company, the company does not see the individual investors on the cap table. We invest through a multi-class LLC structure, and the company just sees one line item on the cap table, which will be Sandhill Angels, XX, 111 LLC, or whatever it is. So is that LLC, would that be the same as an SP special purpose vehicle on the cap table or how does that differentiate? I suppose to the company, it might look about the same, but legally it's an LLC and we join the members to that LLC when at the time of the investment that they put the check. So I guess from the perspective of the company, it probably doesn't look that different than an SPV, which may also be actually legally set up as an SPV, or it could be set up as a Delaware C corporation, depending on how the SPV is set up. But we set it up as an LLC. Okay. So how, when you're saying a group will champion a deal, I guess, through the process, what does that look like? Does someone say, hey, I met this company. I'm going to, I'm thinking of writing a check. Let me introduce you to all the members, or is it, I'll introduce you to two members, and if they like it, introduce it to five, and if they like it, introduce it. So every, so we, we have, the companies have to apply to the group, and every deal has to be exposed to the entire group. So we're, we, we don't allow like little clicks to come together and make decisions and make an investment. So we actually have a system where deals will come in, they apply. We can have somebody that finds a deal say, hey, you should apply, I really like this. So they, the company applies and then they can call up a few people and say, hey, take a look at this deal that's in the system and they can have some conversations. But eventually they'll go through the process, which includes a special interest group evaluating the deal. We have a life science special interest group. We have a business to business special interest group and a business to consumer special interest group that will look at the deals that fall into those categories. And they'll recommend out of that a certain number of those deals each two weeks to put forward to a screening. And and then actually the companies that get selected for screening are actually voted on by the, the broad membership. Not everybody votes, but everybody has a chance to vote. So they'll look at all the companies that have been recommended by the special interest groups and they'll vote and say, yeah, I think this one we should look at it in a screening meeting and we should look at this one and I'm not so interested in that one. And out of that, we pick four or five new companies every two weeks. And sometimes then we're taking a second look at a company that we've already looked at. Maybe there's a follow-on deal. Maybe there's a VC fund or something coming in to pitch to us. But so we fill up six, seven companies every two weeks that will actually then come and pitch to the group. So over the span of a year, how many companies would you say submit an application to the angel group? How many companies would you say in a year they get looked at? What percentage may be the ratio? So I don't know how many per year, as you figured out, I'm not good at math. I couldn't even tell between seven and eight. But every month we're getting 100, 150 deals that are applying, maybe more. Maybe 1,500 deals a year. It's in that ballpark, yeah. And then that will actually, the way we, the special interest groups will only maybe take a deeper dive at maybe eight to 10 of those every two weeks. And out of that, they'll each maybe suggest two to 
four, and then out of the vote, we each screening session, maybe there's two to four, ultimately four or five maybe, that are selected for screening. So every month we're screening maybe six to eight new companies. And out of that, new companies, we might be investing in one or two a month, maybe three a month. So about one and a half percent, maybe one to two percent of the companies that submit might get a check at the end. Yeah. So that's pretty similar to VC ratios. Yeah. Might, maybe it could end up being a little bit higher. We also run fat. We, some, we have something we call a fast track, whereas if there's already enough people that are really excited about a deal and they're on a short time horizon and can't go through that whole process, then we have a way to accelerate that process for them. And so those can run in parallel with the regular process. And there's a few of those that get funded every month. So I want, and, and then we also fund follow on deals and that kind of thing as well. So I was looking few to, there was probably between new and follow on. I want to say there might've been 13 or 15 funding events, uh, probably a third to a half of those might've been new deals, something. And not only are you a board member of going back, probably the most active angel group in Silicon Valley, but you're also a board member of a public company. How does being a board member of a public company differentiate from that of a angel group? And tell us a little bit about that experience. So, I mean, being a board member of the angel group is that's really a, almost really a completely different thing than even say being a board member of a private company. And then that's really different yet again between being a board member of like a public company. So the biggest difference stems from who are your stakeholders, who's your key stakeholder. So if you're like the board member of the angel group, your stakeholders are the members. And so you're basically representing the membership of the group. And then you're taking decisions about the future direction of the group, maybe thinking about changes in the way you want to work, change the process, maybe thinking about changes you might want to make to the bylaws. And of course, the, the board doesn't even have the power to change the bylaws. They can make proposals and then they put those up to the membership for, for a vote. So it's a bit of a, a different thing. Private companies, your primary stakeholder is the shareholders of the company, but it's a small number of shareholders typically. Maybe it's one or two very large shareholders, oftentimes including the founder and the CEO of the company. Um, so you have a different way of who you're being responsible for, and therefore it's a smaller knit, less formal structure. And there's typically more strategic thinking that's going on and less bureaucracy, I would say. Public companies, you're again responsible to the shareholders, but now your shareholders are anybody that can go onto the NASDAQ or wherever and buy shares in the company. And that can be a very large number of people and you don't know who they are. And so your role, the fiduciary responsibilities of your role take a much higher uh, priority in that case. And so everything is much more formalized and legalized. You have audits on everything. You spend a lot of time reviewing financials because you have to publish those out every quarter. You have reports to the SEC that have to be generated. You have to review those. You still are approving the corporate strategy and you're still getting involved in you know, a lot of those aspects of the business. But you always want to be mindful in any of those cases on the company board that it's the CEO and the executive team that are responsible for running the company. So your job is never to step in and take the reins of the company, you know, but you want to offer a, a firm hand in guidance and you want to be a good sounding board to the, to the CEO, but you, you're basically there to offer governance and guidance and make sure everything is clean and right for the shareholders. 
Is that ever a challenge for you or the other board members to not jump in and kind of take the reins? In the private companies, I think it's more of a challenge because, again, smaller knit community, sometimes the board members might be also a large shareholder themselves in some cases. The, and the CEOs are sometimes a little bit less experienced and maybe prone to making mistakes that as board members, you're like, oh, don't do that. You're going to fall in a hole there. Public companies, I, I think, first of all, the board members are a bit more savvy. They kind of know their lanes and are more comfortable sticking to their lanes. And the CEOs are typically more savvy at this point. Not always, because sometimes you get a public CEO who just came out of being a private CEO and just got there very quickly. But in general, the CEOs and the executive teams kind of know what they're doing. And so everybody has their roles to play and it's a little bit cleaner and you don't have to necessarily step in. You sometimes still want it. I really think you should do this. Then you speak up not a problem to speak up. Where do you think the well, one, I, I guess, for the private companies very early on, the startups, very early, how should they go about picking people for their board? Yeah. And also, I'm kind of curious, where do you see the most challenges between, I guess, the dynamics for that board member that has all that experience and that founder or the CEO that might not have as much? Yeah, it's a great question. So rather than how you go about picking, let me start by saying how you don't I think that's probably more important. It's really tempting for startup CEOs, especially, to pick board members that will basically be yes people. It's a natural tendency. And the reason for that is because you don't become an entrepreneur. You don't become a startup founder because you want other people telling you how to do things or what to do. You become a CEO of a startup company because you want to do things your way. You have an idea. You're a great idea. You want to go do it. So you don't want to be in a situation where you've got two or three other people saying, wait a minute, what? don't do it that way. Maybe you should do it this way. Why are you doing that? But the reality of it is you want people that are going to stand up to the CEO. Still, they have to know their lane. And at some point in time, it is the operational responsibility of the CEO to run the company. But the CEO should be comfortable picking people that are going to challenge hold them to task and say, hey, last board meeting, you said by the end of this quarter, you would have met these milestones. It could be a revenue milestone, or if it's a pre-revenue company, it might be a development milestone. You said you would do this and this. You didn't do it. Why not? What support do you need to get it done? They should still be helpful and supportive. They're not there to beat the poor CEO up. They've got to hold the CEO accountable for the things that she or he says that they're going to be doing. Do you think they pick kind of that yes board because they're scared that the board will eventually replace them or that they just want people there that will agree? Why do you think that they have a tendency to put those people in that position or try to get those people to be in that position? I think there's a couple. It's going to be different in different situations, right? Because I think in a lot of situations, the reality of it is the CEO probably owns enough shares that the board probably can't replace them. We're talking about an earlier stage company. So in, yeah. So in these earlier stage companies, the, the CEO probably has 80% of the voting shares or something like that, right? So the board's not going to fire. Later stage, after they've done maybe an A round, B round, there's going to be enough shares out there being held by the shareholders that there is that risk. But at that point in time, the investors are probably putting people on the board in any way. They're not going to be a yes people board anymore. But in that early stage, 
it's probably more they just they want to follow procedure promised they would have a board. They told their early investors, yes, we're going to have a board of three people or five people or whatever it is, but they just want to do things their way. And they want to just be able to say, yep, I have a board, board agreed. This is what we're going to go do. And they're going to go do it. And I think there's probably more of that than anything else. And it's just easy. I mean, how do you want to spend your day, right? Do you want to spend your day arguing with people or do you want to spend your day people going, wow, Sean, that was the best idea ever. I normally have that sound on my phone that I'll play two or three times throughout the day. But where do you think from your career have you learned more on the boards, being in charge of companies, investor? Where have you gotten most of your learning? I just think I'm always learning. In terms of where my learning is applicable to what I'm doing now, I would say most of my learning has come from investing and watching companies and seeing what they're doing and what's working and not working. But I'm going, I mean, I haven't been, I've only been a public board director now for a year and a few months. So I'm just going up a really steep learning curve on that one and and having a blast learning all that stuff. But yeah, I would say in what I do now, just watching good investors and watching good entrepreneurs and bad entrepreneurs go about their decision-making process. That's probably where I'm getting most of the relevant, or I've gotten most of the relevant learning that I'm applying today. But every now and again, I'm surprised. Things will pop back and I'll think about something that happened in my career 20 years ago that I realized, oh man, that is really relevant to what's going on over here now. And so there was good learning throughout my career, I would say as well. And for people that are listening that may have been you know, either past CEOs or founders of companies now and one day want to strive to be on boards, how do they go about finding those openings? How do they get chosen? How do they get picked? I wish I knew. I got recruited for the public and I guess they found me and saw I was a good match for the skill sets that they were looking for. There are resources out there. Of course, you can look on LinkedIn and, and those places. Having a good network help and I'm not by nature just one of these backslapping networking kind of people that networks with everybody. Having a network of people that I trust and that I can add value to that also can maybe someday add value to me, uh, I find very useful and I enjoy doing that kind of networking. So I think that's very helpful because if there's the more people that are out there that know who you are and know your background and know what you are capable of, they're going to reflect on that at some point in time and say, hey, I know this company that was looking for somebody that maybe should be a good fit for their board, but also could maybe help this company expand their business in China. Oh, hey, Sean spent a lot of time in China. Maybe Sean would be a good fit for that role. And then they get to know Sean and they're like, what were you thinking? Well, yeah, but you know, first First steps first. There's that moment in time. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, I mean, that's kind of the only thing that I, and there's resources like Directors Move, Director Moves, it's called, that you can look that up online and that'll tell you where positions are opening up or people are moving around into different positions that create openings and things. But especially for public boards, it's really hard. They're, it's like, they're typically looking for people that have been directors. So if you haven't been a director, it's really hard. I, I That had been my desire for a long time, and I kind of even gave up on it until, until I got recruited, just because I didn't have that public board director on my resume. And it was like, oh, I've got this private board, and I've got this other thing. And yeah, yeah but we're looking for somebody with public board experience. 
So it's just, I don't know, it's it's one of those things where I'm told it's the same thing with Ferrari. I don't know if it's true or not, but I'm told you can't buy a new Ferrari unless you've owned a new Ferrari. I, I don't know if that's true. I'll just text a few people and ask them. Give me a minute here. You mentioned you like to, or that you've watched and kind of learned from other investors what they're doing. What what have you seen? What have you learned? And I'm also going back to maybe the angel group and due diligence, because I'm curious, what type of due diligence does an angel group actually do? I mean, VCs have a staff. That's all they're paid to do. Or private equity, they have all these outside third parties. That's what they're paid to do. What type of due diligence can a, does a group of volunteers that are excited about something kind of do? What's that process look like? So I, I think we basically look at a lot of the same things that all those professional VCs and professional private equity groups would look at, or even some angel groups that might have a staff of diligence people would look at. We, we have our kind of a checklist, but deal to deal, not everybody's going to follow that checklist perfectly because it's a group of volunteers and different people have their own way of working and their own way of doing things. But basically, we look at the team, we try to figure out, does this team have the right skill set? Do they have experience doing startups before? Do they have any previous exits or have they had previous fails that maybe they learned something from that would be useful? If they don't have all the right skill sets to make this particular company successful, do they have the right advisors around them? Do they have the right types of personalities and skills to attract the talent they're going to need to round out the team. So they have clarity of thought when you ask them a question about, well, why are you doing AR instead of VR? Do they have an answer that makes sense to you or does it seem kind of like nonsense? Well, it's like, oh, well, that's the latest buzz and I want to do it that way. Then you're like, okay. But do they throw AI in? Well, AI and, you know, web 3.0 and blockchain and then, you know, Okay, that makes sense now. Okay, now I'm going to invest in that one for sure. I'm sure when this episode's released, it'll be something else. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Whatever that is, you just look for it and you yeah, just tick the box. You. So you want to make sure that they have the, 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 the right capability and the skill sets, right? And, and their thought process around it makes sense. But then you also look, what we look for typically is some validation of product market fit. Well, is the market good, first of all, but on, and does the product make sense? But is there some validation of product market fit? We typically don't invest on back of the napkin ideas. I mean, I suppose, not that you would ever come, but I suppose if Elon Musk were to come to us and sit on the back of a napkin and say, I've got this great idea, it probably wouldn't matter what it is. We'd be like, okay, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. So. Uh, on the other hand, he doesn't need our money. Well, he probably wouldn't need the money. But anyway, if somebody that had a really good track record came with a back of the envelope idea, you might go ahead and invest in that. But the sad part is that a lot of people will come to an angel group, basically just an idea. They haven't validated it all. They haven't done any MVP work. They haven't even built any kind of a prototype for the idea. They haven't done any coding, but it's the best idea. If you look at the history of mankind, this is going to be one of the top 10 ideas in the history of mankind. They're just convinced of it and they don't understand why you won't invest in their idea. It's because, yeah, it may be a great idea, but unless you have validated that people are willing to pay for that idea, why would anybody actually invest in that? Get your friends to invest in it. That's great. Get your family to invest in it. That's great. But to get a third party person who doesn't know you from anybody to invest in your idea, you've got to do a little bit more work than that. Demonstrate that it works. Demonstrate that somebody's going to pay for the idea. So speaking about investment, investing as an individual versus as a syndicate or an angel group, what are some of the benefits or 
What's the good and bad of investing solo versus investing in a group? So I have a number of investment rules for myself, and I've broken almost every single one of them. And it's always turned out positive, right? <laughs> Not necessarily. <laughs> but one of my investment rules is I always try to invest through the group, but I have broken with mixed results. My very first angel investment was just on my own. And that was one of the reasons why I came up with this rule about investing through groups. It was a miserable failure. Leaving out names, what was the miserable failure? What, what part of it was it? Well, let me tell you, so I, without going into the details of the company or the business, let me just tell you why it was a miserable failure. I invested because of FOMO. So I was like, oh, I, I should jump in on this. My friends are investing in this. And yeah, it looks like a good opportunity. But yeah, I might miss out if I don't invest. And my friends are smart. So I had to write a bigger check to have enough influence on the deal. The company was based in, and one of my other rules is I generally only invest in companies in the US. I was going to say, sounds like on that first deal, you broke every rule. So. Pretty much. Yeah, yeah. It wasn't a semiconductor company, which being a semiconductor guy, one of my rules is don't invest in semiconductor companies. But, but that's what you know. Why I don't invest in them. But I've broken that rule actually with some reasonable success. Okay. But that, but, but I broke a lot of rules with that deal and it crashed miserably. Okay. So what I learned from that experience was on my own, although in the meantime, I've gotten better, but at that time, especially I was not good at diligencing a deal. I didn't know if this guy was going to be a really good founder. I didn't know if he had the right team around him. He seemed like a smart guy. I had a great conversation or two with him and seemed, well, he seemed smart. No, I couldn't properly diligence the deal. And the other thing was that I couldn't roll up my sleeves and help them out because they're way over in Europe, right? And it was the only angel deal that was in my deal pipeline. It was like I had a set of one and yeah, it looked pretty good. But you know, when I got exposed to Sandhill Angels and saw their deal flow and saw, went to my first actual screening meeting and saw eight companies present, every single one of which was better looking than the company I'd invested in. And at this point, it hadn't failed yet. It was still going. But I'm looking at all these companies and going, wow, this lady, Mark, she's so much better than the guy that I just invested in. And oh, this guy's really good. This business looks great. Oh my gosh, I want to invest in that. Oh, I want to invest in that one. Oh, I should invest in that one. And all eight companies, I'm thinking, oh, I should invest in every one of these companies. And then I was listening to the questions the other members were asking them in the meeting. Wow, that's such a good question. I never would have thought of asking that question. Whoa, that's a great, these guys are smart. And then I realized I am just a babe in the woods. I don't know even what questions to ask half of these companies yet. And better deal flow in the group, the intelligence of 150 other people, most of which are smarter than me, probably 149 of them are smarter than me. And then the ability to, you know, diligence with the help of some of those people that the deals. And the other thing, none of those eight companies got invested. None of them. None of them. The group didn't think any of those were good enough. <laughs> I'm just picturing you bringing your one investment at that time oh, there and going like, hey, you see them? You see that? <laughs> <laughs> would have been a disaster. Good thing I didn't because they would probably not let me join, right? Oh, they would, they would have liked it. They're like, Drew always brings comedy to us. So for me, it was like the, the criteria alone versus being with the group was pretty clear that the benefits of the m mindset of having all of these people looking at deals and group thing can be a problem. Sometimes you get a whole bunch of people all excited about a deal that maybe isn't worth getting excited about, but there's 
FOMO within the group that happens. But in general, you have people really looking at it from all angles with different perspectives, people that can understand how to read a patent and these kinds of things. You get a much clearer view of the companies and you can make better investment decisions. In the meantime, I've learned I can diligence deals a lot better. And I have been involved in deals that were going through the process that I was really enthusiastic about. For whatever reason, the group wasn't as enthusiastic about. And I've gone in and invested on my own. And some of those companies are doing great and really well. And I feel very vindicated by their performance in the meantime. Like, okay, I think I know what I'm doing now. But I've still invested in a couple that maybe I invested for more emotional rather than purely rational reasons. And they're like, yeah. And I've had ones that we've invested in with the group that have crashed and burned as well. That's part of investing, right? But the other thing about investing in a group, I mentioned earlier, when you invest individually, you have to write bigger checks. And if you invest through a group, you don't have to write the big checks. Speaking of the group versus individual, what about negotiating with the company as an individual versus with the group? How does that, how do the dynamics difference there? Or are you ever really negotiating term sheets? Are you just piggybacking off another group or another individual or someone else, what they've come to terms with? If I'm investing as an individual angel on my own, I'm probably not in a position to have any say on any of the terms. It's kind of like, hey, we've got this deal you know, do you want in? And minimum check size is X. Take it or leave it. If I'm investing as part of Sandhill Angels, Sandhill Angels as a group is in a position to do some negotiating. Um, we may not be writing the term sheet. We very rarely lead a deal. We have led deals, but not so often. I've never written a term sheet myself. But um, we, besides the money and the checks we write, because of, uh, again, what we bring as a membership with the different skills that we have, um, the fact that we like to roll up our sleeves and, you know, we can help companies out, make introductions with our network of networks. We can introduce them to other investors. We can introduce customers. We can introduce potential employees. We have a network of um, law firms and other people that maybe can help them out if they need something that their existing law firms can't help them out with or whatever. Um, we bring enough value that um, sometimes we can negotiate for something that wouldn't have been part of the normal deal, like uh, pro rata rights on a, a subsequent round um, or uh, part um, um, if you're doing a. Um, uh, if if there's an exit or uh, something like that, sometimes you know we can negotiate, um, you know, some kind of uh, special rights on on an exit, that kind of thing. Um, so we have had the ability to negotiate special terms on deals that, as a group, writing a bigger check on one line item on a cap table, uh, we're able to influence as a group, and maybe not just the angel group you're part, of, but other angel groups or anytime it's a syndicate investment, how much benefit does the company get from having access to multiple members? Because I'm guessing if multiple people are writing checks, multiple people are then going to open up their Rolodex, going to open up their knowledge center. Should early com early stage companies, should they actively be seeking maybe those smaller checks or that syndicate group first, maybe that micro VC or someone that just writes one check in the group? Depends on the micro VC. Some micro VCs are really helpful and they have a big Rolodex. A lot of micro VCs 
specialize. It could be they specialize in a particular technology or a particular industry. So they're going to have a really good Rolodex in that industry or that technology. Some micro VCs will specialize in, say, female founders or something along those lines. So they can also, again, offer a lot of help and resources in those areas. So I, I think it makes sense for companies to look at that. I think angel groups, as a broad category, can offer a lot in, in those areas as well, though. And I think definitely early stage companies should be looking at that. But again, keeping in mind that early stage still means there should be some validation of product market fit. Other than that first company that you're really excited to invest in, your other past investments, can you share any stories and why they captured your attention? Well, my first investment with Sandhill Angels was a company called Pretty Litter, which made, of all things, cat litter. I'm a tech guy. My focus as an investor was supposed to be automotive and transportation related investments. And my very first investment was a company that made cat litter. And I thought, very interesting. I'm already off course. But, but that technology, you understood. So <laughs> At least, yeah, I was capable of getting my head around it. But first of all, all those smart people that I was still really impressed with in the group, they were all really excited about this opportunity. Okay, there must be something to this. And so I tried to understand, well, why? What is it? What is it about this company that makes cat litter that's got all these people excited? We're all supposed to be technologists. And what I learned was here's a company that is actually able to differentiate its product through technology in a way. It's not computer chips or software, but it's through the chemical composition of the cat litter that allowed the cat litter to change colors if the cat had some kind of health issue that would show up through the urine. And this was at a time when sales of product or cat and dog care were just starting to skyrocket. People were spending more on their pets than they were on their children. And so it's like, oh, okay, so this makes sense, hitting a market that's really growing very fast and it allows people to be very mindful of the health of their cat. On top of that, because of the way they have to manufacture the cat litter, it's not dust. So a lot of cat litter is very dusty. You pour it in the box and then you get this dust flying up through the area. But it doesn't do that because of the, the, way, it's it's, the way it's made, it's very clean in that respect. So there's that. And on top of that, because it's a startup company, and they don't want to go out and fight for shelf space in all the stores, they were delivering to your home. And another problem for people that buy a lot of cat litter is you have to go to the store, you buy a 50 pound bag of cat litter, and you got to carry this heavy thing and put it in the back of your car, or take it home and carry it into the house. And this was just going up on your doors. So it just hit, it hit all of these right things to make this product very attractive to everybody that was wanting to spend a little extra money on caring for their cat. And the team, and the team was fantastic. It was just a small team, but great marketing skills. They had all the right capabilities on the team that they needed, and they were very capital efficient. They had achieved what they had achieved and already demonstrated some product market fit on very low use of funds so far. So it just ticked all the right boxes. So I got really excited about it, invested in it. Because it wasn't my space, I couldn't roll up my sleeves and help them out. But one of our other members actually was very involved with them and just waited. And the thing ended up exiting just short of five years. Oh, so, no QSB uh, yeah, qualified. QSB. <laughs> <laughs> or any of the early investors like, hey, you want to you wanna wait till after New Year's? You want to? <laughs> but it was acquired. 
So it was, it was an M&A acquisition, all cash. Oh, okay. And valued at 67x return on investment. Okay. Really nice. Yeah. I mean, from my understanding, you picked the wrong investment banker, but you know, no one's perfect oh, we, there. We didn't. <laughs> For our, any first-time listeners to the show, I'm an investment banker, so throwing that out there. For our listeners, our first-time listeners. If they had asked, I would have recommended you, but they didn't ask. I know. It's, it's, always, it's always an afterthought. But, but Drew, okay, so talked about Sandhill. We talked about you on public and private boards. We've talked about your career. Let's talk a little about West Africa. We met, I mean, we knew each other before, but we spent a week in Cote d'Ivoire. What did you see there, maybe around the economic ecosystem, the entrepreneur ecosystem that excited you? Yeah. So that was actually, I mean, besides just being a lot of fun traveling, like other places that I've been in Africa, and this was my first time in the French speaking part of Africa, but I've been in other parts of Africa. I'm always impressed by the entrepreneurial spirit that you see in Africa. The people there, they have their daily lives that they have to live. They have a lot of problems and issues that are just surrounding. They have a really rapidly growing population, a lot of poverty, but they have a rapidly growing middle class as well. They are aware of what the first world has in terms of wealth and standard of living. Many people in the Ivory Coast, I can't pronounce Cote d'Ivoire correctly, so I'm just going to say Ivory Coast. Apologies to the French-speaking listeners, they know what needs to be done for the most part, and they just get on with it. And that really impresses me when you see that. So as we were traveling around, you see, first of all, some government officials, Dr. Aka in particular, who are really tuned in and kind of want to make a difference and working to make a difference. And Aruna Dow was traveling with us and really helping us see things. But you know, he gets it. That helps a lot. The real enthusiasm that I experienced came from just meeting with some of the entrepreneurs. And these are people that they go out, they spend time in the markets, and they see what the lady selling bananas has to cope with on a daily basis. And a lot of the people that are selling bananas, that's an example, could be anything else, could be fish, whatever, but they're illiterate. They don't read, they don't write, but they're making a living selling fruit. And so the entrepreneurs are thinking, well, how can I help these women? And what technology can I bring to the table to help these women? And they sit and they think about it and they create something and they actually make it work. That's exciting. We sit here, we're thinking about all these big projects, infrastructure stuff, and yeah, they need infrastructure as well. But the people on the street aren't sitting here thinking about, oh, if only I had better roads, I could do something. No, they're like, hey, I can just make a difference with the roads the way they are now. I just solve one problem at a time. And they're a mobile first economy. So a lot of the technology there is around mobile phones. There's tremendous fintech opportunities. And it's just so exciting to me to see people just go solve problems. Is there any technology that you think either could be brought there, developed there, used there. Is there any technology that you think could really help that part of the world? Well, I'm absolutely convinced anything that can be done mobile first is going to have a big impact. Anything that you can run on a mobile phone that's voice leading or icon leading as opposed to heavy in text, uh, visual text, written text, uh, will be very helpful. I think fintech solutions 
And, you know, you could argue that needs to be tokenized in some way. I'm, I'm not a big advocate or I'm not, not a big detractor either for or tokens and all that. I don't really get involved one way or the other, quite honestly. I could see that there would be use cases for that as a way to maybe simplify the person-to-person transactions there. But I don't think you necessarily need to do a big project there on that. I think you know, that'll come naturally. Discussing transactions, what would it take for Silicon Valley investors to get excited about investing in that part of the world, maybe Nigeria or Ghana or Ivory Coast? Or, and what would that kind of look like? There's a couple. But one of the biggest things is corporate governance and the ability to get capital back out. And in places like Nigeria, Ghana, Kenya, so the English-speaking part of that region, they're further along, which makes it more investor-friendly. And I think there's already quite some good uh, VCs operating in those areas, some good companies coming up in those areas. I think that still needs some work in the uh, francophone part of sub-Saharan Africa. So that's one of the things that needs to probably be addressed before there's like real tremendous enthusiasm that would bring in a lot of capital and a lot of investment in that area. It can be dealt with. I think there's ways that that can be addressed prior to all of those things being fixed. You don't have to sit back and wait for them to fix it and work with it and work around it. But I think that's a big one. I think that will hold back some of these economies a little bit until that's fully addressed. I think awareness is just another part of it. I think a lot of people look at Africa and they see what happens now. It's Ethiopia where there's civil war going on. There's disruptions taking place in certain parts of the world. In Africa, some was it Sudan, there's stuff going on, right? And it's hard for them to understand that what's happening in Sudan is not necessarily what's happening in Ghana or Ivory Coast or in Kenya, for example. And just being aware that there is this rapidly growing economy there that by 2050 will probably be larger than China and India combined. And so if you're interested in investing in emerging economies, this is one of the emerging economies that you should be paying attention to. And with that, Drew, what's on the horizon for Drew for the next 12 to 24 months? Well, I really want to try to make something happen out of this Ivory Coast trip. Okay. I think there's some exciting stuff that can be done there. So I would really like to do some follow-up work on that and see what we can get going. I think um, it's going to take some work. Thinking. Well, you're retired now, so you don't have anything else else yeah, to work exactly. on. You're not busy, from my understanding. No, I'm not busy at all. No, so uh, no, so that's one of the things. Yeah, I'm going to relocate. Uh, you know, move to San Diego, and at the end of the year, I'm going to go do a really nice trip to Antarctica. Other than that, I don't know. Fantastic. And if our audience wants to learn more, either about Sandhill yourself or anything, what's the best way to go about doing it? So check out sandhillangels.com the best place to learn about Sand Hill Angels. And if you want to learn a bit more about what I do as a 
consultant or an advisor or that kind of thing, check out betterbigpicture.com. All right. We'll have that information in the show notes. And I'm not the host of the Silicon Valley podcast. I'm an investment banker focused on mergers, acquisition, growth capital. Connect with me on LinkedIn. Love to have a conversation. Earlier, the better. And with that, Drew, I want to thank you for taking the time to be on this week's episode of the Silicon Valley podcast. Thanks, Sean. Pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Silicon Valley podcast. To access our resources, visit us at thesiliconvalleypodcast.com and follow our host on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at Sean Flynn SV. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional.